Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. On this episode of Looking Forward, we're going to speak about something that affects all of us, families. Our guest today is an expert on that subject, not only here in the United States, but globally as well. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Bahira Trask to our show. Dr. Trask is Professor and Chair of Human Development and Family Sciences at the University of Delaware. Her research focuses on globalization and family change in Western and non-Western countries, and she presents regularly on these topics at international forums, including, by the way, the United Nations. So she is no small potato in this field. Hi, Bahira. Good morning, Jeff. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Welcome to Looking Forward. Now, Bahira, if you wouldn't mind, can you please tell us a bit about the kind of work you do and the projects you get involved with at the University of Delaware? I'd be happy to. So I've really, Jeff, I've really devoted my career to studying family change, as you mentioned. And what's different about the work that I do is I look at family change in both Western and non-Western societies. Yeah. Most work on families is done actually in the United States. That's sort of the center of family research. And then some is done in what was formerly known as Western Europe. But there's very little work on families in other societies. So, And my main focus is on work-family gender relationships. So I'm, I started out with looking at Actually, I'm an anthropologist. That's an important part of this okay, because it's okay. a specific way of thinking and studying families different than sociologists. And my original research was actually conducted in Egypt and in Turkey. And I was interested in professional women who worked outside of the home and sure. how that was perceived in traditional Islamic cultures and how that changed families. And then from there, I've done research on this topic here in the United States and also in Europe. And I've been to other, I've been to China, Japan, I've been to other non-Western countries, always with the same focus. You know, what's so fascinating about that, Bahira, is that that topic has been of interest for several years now, decades, and it only continues to be of great interest. The interest has not lulled at all with that. Yeah. And, and there you are, really uh, very much entrenched in that. Now, one quick question before I get on to something more substantive. Our audience in listening to you will detect, as I did the first time I heard you, a little bit of an accent. So can you just briefly tell us where you are originally from? I get asked that all the time in the sure. supermarket, you know, and I tell people I'm from <laughs> Texas. But it's, not actually, it's not a New Jersey accent. I know that. Yeah. So my mother is German and my father is Egyptian or was. He is de unfortunately dead now. Oh. I was born in Cairo, Egypt, and oh. I went to a German school. So and we spoke German at home. 
And when I was eight years old, we immigrated to America, to Connecticut. And I grew up in Connecticut, but we always spoke German at home. Yes. And I might add for the audience, you also went to an undergraduate school that I could never in my lifetime have imagined getting into, and that is Yale. <laughs> Maybe in my next lifetime, be here, but not this one. No, no, no. But I did visit Yale. I did visit Yale. Okay. Bahira, can you tell us a little bit about when and why you became interested in studying families, not only here in the United States, but abroad? And of course, we've heard now that you're from Egypt originally. Yeah, just as a comment, Yale was an incredible experience. And Yale, Yale was an incredible I, experience. Yeah. When I got in, I, I didn't want to go. I told my father I'm not going. He said, why? I said, I'm not smart enough. He said, you were smart enough to get in? Go. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Good for him. And I'm yeah, glad you yeah. stayed. Yeah. <laughs> it was a pivotal experience. You know, I always get asked this and... It's interesting because when I was young, and I have young children, and so we talk about what they're going to be all the time. They're both very interested in this topic. I didn't realize this, but I only realized it in retrospect. I've always been interested in families. I came from a very close family. I had wonderful parents, very supportive. I would never have achieved what I achieved without the mentorship of my parents and specifically my father, which in, again, in retrospect, you know, as an Egyptian, not to be culturally, but he was the one who said from the beginning, you have to study, you have to be independent, you have to have a profession, you have to always be able to take care of yourself, never rely on a man, you know, do your own thing. I mean, from day one, I was a tiny little girl and he told me that. So wow. the very first thing I ever did on families was in ninth grade, we had to write our first, you know, term paper. We had to learn how to write a term paper. And I remember I wrote a term paper on the generation gap, you know, and I was really interested in how generations perceive each wow. other. Then I abandoned that interest. I ended up in college. I thought I wanted to work for the State Department or go be a, like international international law. So I studied political science. I didn't really like political science. And when my senior, and this is how people can play a role in your life unknowingly. Yeah. My senior year at Yale, you have to write a senior thesis and you have to have an advisor. And my advisor really liked my thesis and he called me into his office and he said, what are you gonna do? And I said, I'm planning to apply to law school. And he said, everybody's applying to law school. Don't go to law school. You have yeah. an academic mind. You should get a PhD. And yeah. I said, oh, but I don't want to get a PhD in political science. And he said, well, get a PhD in something else. Yeah. You know? And so I ended up taking a couple of years off. And I actually went and lived in Germany for a couple of years and discovered sort of the field of anthropology and decided to get a PhD in cultural anthropology and came back and went to UPenn. And the reason I went to UPenn is because they had like a foundational year where you could kind of make, you know, if you hadn't been a major as an undergraduate, you could kind of get the foundation in one year and then you have to take an exam and all of that. And I did all that. And so fast forward, again, didn't know what I wanted to study, was having mixed feelings about anthropology, was my second year of graduate school, 
And I took a course on social organization. Social organization is one of the sort of foundational aspects of anthropology. And we started reading all this work on the history of European families, a whole big famous body of work. And I got really interested. It was the first time ever that something really sparked my interest. And I always remember the day I raised my hand in class and I said, has similar work been done on non-Western countries like China or Egypt or Nigeria? And the professor, he wrinkled his brow and he said, no, we don't need to study not families in non-Western cultures. They don't change. They're determined by culture. Ah. And that I just had this reaction to it. <laughs> and I was like, that cannot be, you yeah. know. And my career was born at that moment. Wow. A couple things that you said me here that really struck me. That was all very interesting. Actually, maybe it's one big thing. And that is the role that mentors or influencers can have in yeah. our lives. You started yeah. with your father. May he rest yeah. in peace. Your yes. father, from when you yeah. were a very young age, said, you need to study. You need to be yeah. self-sufficient. Yeah. And he encouraged you in that direction. And he was it, so and, right. And I about you, at a time when men did not do this. Yes. Yeah, so he was yeah. kind of early in the game in, in, yes. in doing that. Yeah. And, and, then, and then, of course, that professor at Yale Yes. I mean, here you are, you're ready to go to law school. And yeah. the professor says, everybody goes to law school. Yeah. And that shifted your direction. And I yeah. guess in some sense, maybe even the professor at Penn saying, ah, you don't need to study yeah. that. That yeah. kind of made you, you know, rear back yeah. and say, what? So you, so you get into the, the interest in the family. It's clear you've got an interest, not just in a small spot within the world, but many places around the world. And that leads me to ask you something that I know that you really have focused on and are an expert in, and that is, Bahira, as we look back, even though the show is looking forward, we sometimes yeah. have to look back. So we yeah. look back at the last decade or two or so. What I'm interested in your telling us is how has the family changed over that period of time here and elsewhere? What repercussions do you think that has had? And since you're studying not only the U.S., but other countries as well, are there many differences between how families have evolved or not over that period of time? What a nice small question, Jeff. Yes, and I give you, <laughs> and you have 30 seconds. <laughs> so my 30 second uh, answer would be yes, families yes. have changed. I had a feeling <laughs> that was coming. Okay. The more complex answer is I'm speaking as an anthropologist. And as an anthropologist, we've all, we have evolved and we have adapted in small groups. We rely as human beings, our safety and security comes from affiliation of some kind of small group. So in most societies and throughout time, it has been family, but family defined in many different ways. Today, we have a 1950s conception of family, mom, dad, heterosexual family with 2.5 children, you know, house in the suburbs kind of thing. But historically and cross-culturally, people have lived in many different types of family formations. That's true in the West also, by the way. You know, we don't need to just look at the Eskimos in northern Alaska or Russia or, you know, 
uh, various tribes in Southeast Asia. No, we've always lived in various types. We adapt to our environment, but our safety is that small group. So, for example, looking back at colonial America, you know, people came over in small nuclear families. I teach a very large class and I always tell my students that. We think that historically people lived in large extended families. But if you look at the United States, how, how did people come over in the 1700s? They had to come over on boats, on small, uncomfortable wooden boats. It was a complicated journey, couldn't take a lot of things with you. So you had to be young and sturdy and healthy to come. So who did this trip? Single men hmm. and small nuclear young families. They had to leave everybody else behind. And that's how, that was the foundation of the United States. It was really built by younger people. You know, a couple of years ago, I read a really interesting book. I picked it up accidentally in one of my travels out West. And it was about... Um, the people who crossed the plains and the covered wagons. And it was a book written by, it was uh, like biographies of women. They kept journals about that trip. And what I hadn't realized until I read that book was that most of the people who made this trip across America to the West in these covered wagons, they were young. They were teenagers. Again, young, sturdy people who could live under these difficult conditions. And their parents had all been immigrants. So they had learned, they had lived firsthand the experience of leaving everything behind and starting over again. Okay, that only answers a piece of your question. Sorry, it's a very broad that, question. That, no, that's but okay. As, as families are changing in the West, they're also changing in other parts of the world. And my, my area of interest has been all along the issue of gender and how when women's roles change, the family, the arrangement of the family changes. And that's what you're seeing all over the world. You're seeing more and more women enter the paid labor force. Also, you know, in places like Bangladesh, in South Africa, you know, Australia, all over the world, more and more women in the paid labor force. That women, women have always worked, I should say. And they've also always been segments, especially among uh, lower income groups, where the women have had to work. But now we're seeing women across the socioeconomic range in the workplace, and that changes the dynamics of what happens in families, for good and for bad, both. So the big change has been more women doing paid work. Yes. That's the, the biggest change that's happened over the last couple or so decades. Is that, and that's a phenomenon, Bira, that's happening here, and it's also happening elsewhere. And, and is it happening in the same way? Is, is it happening at the same pace? Good question. So I just also, for the record, want to say, so the women in the paid labor force is kind of the sociological phenomenon I'm interested in. But in terms of family change, it's very important to remember two other major demographic changes. One is that with the exception of sub-Saharan Africa, fertility is going down all around the world. And this is actually a problem. So women are having fewer and fewer children. 
And there are many countries that are now at zero replacement rate, so very problematic, and we're living longer also. So what we have seen is, in terms of the population, is it used to look like a pyramid, a lot of children being born and some older people. Now it's looking like a rectangle. So you even have places where there are more older people than there are young people. And that is a first in human history. And so that's leading to other types of changes as well, because it's related to caregiving, roles for older people, you know, sort of rethinking economies and all that. I just want to say that for the record. So that's another important piece of family change. My interest, however, like I said, is in the issue of gender and money and how, you know, the relationship within the family changes. And as women are able to earn their own income, they they can leave if they're unhappy with their family for whatever reason. And that's happening in places where that was before, you know, 30 years ago, that was unheard of. So Now, this may relate to the covered wagons and the people coming to America, but as part of this, what seems to be huge change in the last several decades, you have more people for a variety of reasons who are in a family of one, correct? Yes. These are yes. single people, older single yes. people, younger single yes. people, yes. people who decided they weren't, aren't going to get married yet or get married at all. That's mm -hmm. part of this, right? Yes, uh, that, but I would say that's more a Western and an urban phenomenon. Okay. So, you know, I, I read a statistic somewhere about New York City. I think over 50% of households are one person in yeah. New York, you know. You also find that in certain areas in Europe, but it's not everywhere. I have been working with uh, colleagues in Greece, for example, for the last three years now. You know, in Greece, people still are very connected to their extended families and people they grew up with in their village or town. You know, it's, you've, it's not common to find someone on their own the way it might be in New York. Also, I think if you go in, you know, America is a very regional place, very different. We forget that, you know, so New York City does not represent a small town in Iowa, for example. I True. think if you, and also we're very multi-ethnic, so we have many different groups. And, you know, again, you know, if you go to Southern Florida, which is heavily Cuban, or if you go, you know, I lived in Hawaii for two summers, there's many different Asian populations. People live in multi, even today in Hawaii, people live in multi-generational housing uh, developments that influences real estate. They don't have as many old age homes. You know, so again, we have to be careful about generalizing because there's multiple modes of living. But one phenomenon is, I would say, in the urban Western areas, people living on their own. Yes. People living on their own. Now, let yeah. me... Let me um go back to something you said earlier. John Nesbitt many years ago wrote Megatrends, and it seems like more women working is a megatrend. Yes. And you talked about, you know, you said, Jeff, that's a good thing, and it's not such a good thing, which yep. gets to the, the implications or maybe the repercussions of that. Can you speak to that? And again, if there's any contrast here between here and mm -hmm. elsewhere, Please mention that as well. Well, I mean, the, the benefits are the obvious benefits, you know, which is 
opportunities for self-actualization, for training, education, if you have those opportunities. We have to remember that a lot of women work jobs that are not, there's a big difference between having the kind of wonderful job I have and working in a factory all day, you know, sewing some little garment, you know, or what, you know, there's a lot of difference. When we talk about working outside of the home for pay, it's along a very broad spectrum. Yes. But that said, I've read studies about places like Thailand, Bangladesh, China, where young women, you know, it, they leave their villages and they're able to work in factories in jobs that we consider terrible jobs. And yet, the fact that they're able to earn their own income does give them some autonomy, you know? So they see it somewhat differently than we do. That said- so also, I wanna stop you for one second. You yes. said some autonomy? Yes. Gives them some autonomy. Some okay. independence, yeah. yeah. Okay. But that same, that same sort of positive piece sometimes has a ripple effect, which is, that domestic violence is on the upswing in a lot of places. And it has to do with the fact that in some very sort of more quote unquote traditional places where gender roles have been clearly defined, the fact that women have more independence or autonomy through their income has led to their husbands specifically beating them. Because if if the man loses his job, for example, and she's now the one bringing in the income and they live in a context where the man is the quote unquote head of the household, he may become very resentful about what is going on. Sure. And how do you define masculinity? You know, he feels he's less of a man. And so, or quote, again, quote unquote, less of a man. And, and he may, may take it out in becoming more violent. So we've seen some spikes of that around the world. It's something that's not doesn't get talked about a lot. So I think yeah. the second piece in this is they sometimes call it the incomplete gender revolution. So the second wave of feminism in the late 60s, 70s, early 80s brought about this major shift with you know women like me who were able to go to places. I went to Yale when it was an all-male school still. I mean, it was male, you know? I'm yeah. dating myself with this. Yeah. But I was in that first 10-year cohort of women at Yale. And so that was an incredible opportunity at the time. It was a rearrangement of society. But what didn't change is what happens in the home. So still, on average, women do almost double the amount of domestic work than men do. Now, that said, younger men have been socialized differently. Younger men have been socialized to help in the home and to help with the children and all of that. But where we see still incredible inequality is in the care of disabled family members and elderly family members. That kind of caregiving, I think up to 90% of that caregiving is still done by women. So you have, so women have second and third shifts that they're doing. And our society has not rearranged itself in such a way to support families around those issues. Okay. That's an example of the downside of this per se. Yeah. 
How about as far as how this has all affected the intactness of relationships, of, of marital relationships? You talked about your father saying, so you won't have to depend. Well, that makes women more free to be able to, to leave. Yes. To leave. Yep. So yep. How, how has the family structure been affected by, by this sea change? Well, that's a, again, that's, that's a complicated issue. So until the mid to late 1960s in the United States, marriage, sex, and children all came together for most people. That was sort of the, the, the path. You lived at home, you know, then maybe you went off to college, maybe you stayed home, you know, depending on your education level, and you married. And marriage was the, 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 the stepping stone into a whole different phase in your life. For women in particular, it was the introduction to sexuality. And for men and women, it was the arena in which to have children. That was sort of the acceptable pathway. The late 1960s, early 70s kind of blew that all. There was the introduction of the birth control pill, which allowed women to have sex more freely without being worried about getting pregnant. But there were other changes in the society as well. And a sort of greater openness to other lifestyles. So, so when I first came to UD in 1997, there was a class on the books in our department. I actually still taught it for a couple of years, and it was called Emerging Lifestyles. And the class was centered on, it was created in the late 60s, and it was centered around the idea that we were going to be living in communes, you know, polyamorous relationships, all of these different ways. Well, you know, fast forward to 2020, that's not what happened at all. We don't live in communes. Most of those sort of communities have actually died out. We actually live in very traditional couple forms with the label formal label of marriage or without the formal label of marriage. But still, we're not living that differently. That said, marriage itself has changed. Because like I said at the beginning, marriage used to be a major change in your life. You know, this entree into sexuality and children, particularly for women, but even for men, you know, because there was just, it, 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 it was just the society in general was culturally was more restrictive. That's really changed. And I've read some very interesting recent studies that point out that these days, what has actually happened is marriage has become stricter. So in the time that, in the period of time that people are married today, you know, we really emphasize sexual exclusivity. Even though people are having fewer children, especially in the United States, still there's at least the expectation of children. Even if people decide not to have children, they're always kind of having to make excuses for why they're not having children. But there's, you know, we're very strict about what happens within marriage. We're not at all strict about what happens outside of marriage. Before people get married and then later when they're divorced. So now it's expected that people, well, not everybody again, because we have a lot of diversity in the United States, but the main quote unquote mainstream culture is much more accepting of people having multiple sexual partners, children born outside of marriage. 42% of all children today in the United States are born outside of marriage. Wow. You know, that figure when I was in high school would have been un, un 
unthinkable, you know, and now it's really become in Western societies much more acceptable. Let me tell you a small anecdote though. This is not necessarily true in other places in the world. So two years ago, I was in Qatar. Qatar is a small country, looks like a little nubin coming off Saudi Arabia. And I was giving a talk with a lot of people. And at the end of the talk, a gentleman raises his hands and he gets up and he's a traditional Qatari gentleman, you know, in the big, you know, flowing headpiece and everything else. And he says, your talk is very interesting, but tell me, I have heard that in America, women can have a baby without being married. How do they do this? How do they live alone with a child? How do they support the child? And what name does the child get? You know, and it was interesting having to fall all over myself, explaining why this is not necessarily a bad thing. Yes. You know, it was interesting because I see myself as a very open-minded person and I'm a very live and let live person. You know, whatever you choose to do is fine with me. It's not my business. But it was still interesting having to explain that. And there is the phenomenon in the United States called the feminization of poverty. And what that means is that increasingly who's poor in America are women. And most of these women have children. So again, we don't have, we sort of have these phenomena happening, but we don't have the supports in place to help people survive and live decently. Like, you know, a woman who doesn't have an education or a man, I would, either one who doesn't have an education, they have young children, very hard for them these days to make ends meet. If they work a job at minimum wage, they're not going to be able to pay their bills. So Absolutely. I'm going to mention a couple of things that I can relate to based on what you said, and then we're going to move in another direction. When I was in 12th grade, there was a girl in our senior class who got pregnant. Now I'm dating myself. And she was like the talk of the town. She was a pariah. It's like, did you hear so-and-so got pregnant? And I might add, she did not have an abortion to her. You know, she raised that child. I don't know if she ended up getting married or what. Uh, The other thing is I definitely remember in 1969, 1970, all this talk about communes and and we were going to buck the system, the baby boomers, we were going to do this, that, and the other. By and large, it never happened. It never happened. Now, let's talk about Mm COVID-19, this horrific pandemic that's global in, in scope. Yeah. I, I know you could talk forever about this, but can you kind of give us a brief sense as to how, in your opinion, and from what you study and you hear, is this affecting the family mm-hmm. here and elsewhere? Bahira. Yeah, so I've been actually giving, given, been giving this topic a lot, of, just as a, in parentheses too, I had a, there was a girl in my high school class, young woman, same story like yours, exactly. So yes. just in parentheses. Yeah. So COVID-19 has had many different effects on families. It hasn't had just one effect. Okay. And again, I think it really depends where you fall on the socioeconomic spectrum. So, for example, for my colleagues and other professional people that I know, we're all sheltering in place with 
if we have children, with our children. If you have very young children, it is incredibly difficult. Everybody keeps talking about how difficult it is for women. Yes, because there's been a move towards kind of a more gendered, traditional distribution of labor. So women are picking up the homeschooling, they're picking up the caretaking, all of that. But I will just give you one personal anecdote that we ignore. I have a friend, a young man, he's, I think, in his late 30s, very accomplished. They have two very young children, both he and his wife work. And I've been hearing from him how difficult it is on him also. And his worry isn't maybe as much as his wife's on caregiving. His worry is that he may lose his job if he's not performing at the level that he was always performing at. So he's really feeling the sort of breadwinner pressure on himself. And that's something I haven't heard anyone talk about. We, everybody's very aware of the sort of the gendered repercussions of COVID-19 and that women are picking up the slack, but we're forgetting that there's another dimension in this crisis, which has to do with economics. And even for people who are relatively secure in terms of having jobs that allow them to stay at home, they make enough money to pay the bills and all that, there's, there's that aspect of things. If you are on the other end of the spectrum and you are deemed a quote-unquote essential worker, it's been an absolute nightmare. You know, what do you do with your children? And, you know, the big push to open the schools really has to do, my cynical self says, it's not so much about the socio-emotional learning of children. It is about reviving the economy because people depend on schools for their childcare. And if you have young, especially if you have children under the age of 12 at home, you're not by law allowed to leave them alone, then what do you do? If childcare is closed, schools are closed, and you have to go to work. So this is where if you're lucky enough to have extended family, your mother, your aunt, someone to take care of your children, then then you work it out that, but not everybody has that. So, and then you run into the issue of, okay, I don't have any of these people. So do I do it with a friend, a neighbor? Do I trust that they've really been sheltering in place? So people get, uh, a lot of people are being put into a position where they have to choose their health and their family's health or gamble. You know, they're gambling with that versus participating in in the economy. And this is, I think, a terrible choice to have to make. And we're not talking enough as a society about the moral issues involved here. I've heard some of my friends who are, they, you know, they, they're complaining bitterly about being at home and not being able to travel and not being bored at home. And I keep saying, we're the lucky ones, you know, we're sitting in our comfortable houses with our internet and Netflix, you know, that's not where the real problem is. The real problem is a large group of people we're not talking about who, who, who are not, they're not able to make ends meet or they've lost their jobs. They, they don't, you know, what, what I forgot, I saw the statistic. I just, I've forgotten it. You know, I think 26 million people have lost their jobs. So. Yes, I can definitely relate to being one of those lucky 
people. My children are grown and I'm semi-retired and I can watch these programs and do these things. But I want to quickly follow that up with the situation that you just addressed, which is a very dire situation, a very stressful situation. Is this also being mirrored in other countries or does their government take more care of them? What are you seeing? It, it again depends what what part of the world you're looking at. But yes, in many other countries, they have, especially in Europe, they have a stronger social welfare orientation. And so, for example, in the UK, the government is giving money to the workplaces. And then the workplaces, they pay, I think I read it 70%, people are getting 70% or were getting 70% of their incomes while sheltering in place. So that makes it doable. You know, what we've done in the United States is we've basically shut everything down and said, okay, you're on your own, you know. So one in two Americans works or owns a small business. And that's who's really impacted by this. I see in my own neighborhood, restaurants closing, shops closing, little sure. cafes closing. You know, people can't keep them going. That's a different situation than if the government is giving you two-thirds of your income so that you can stay at home. You asked how it affects family life. Well, I mean, money is the number one thing that people fight about and get stressed about. So that leads to family instability. I think my prediction is when this is over, we're going to see a spike in divorce. Even though in the United States, divorce had been going down, I think we're going to see a spike because, you know, if you're sheltering in place with someone you love, I have my children at home. I have 13-year-old twins. It's been very nice. We've, you know, I've gotten to bond with them more. We go for walks every day. We have a puppy. We watch movies. You know, it's been really nice. But if you're sheltering in place, one with someone you don't get along with to begin with, yeah. you know, if the tensions are high, or if you add, and then if you add financial pressure to that, you get a whole different situation. So again, we've seen multiple outcomes from this. You ask about a global perspective. The yeah. global perspective is that women have been picking up a lot of this domestic work, childcare, all of that from a global perspective. Okay. Thank you for, for pointing that out. And you were sort of leading into where I was going. The show is looking forward. So if we're looking on out into the future, say over the next five plus years, and God willing, COVID-19 is behind us. Vaccine has come out. People are actually taking the vaccine. It's very effective. Yeah. And we get to a new normal state. What do you see happening with the family as a result of all this and over the next, you know, like say five or so years? You, you sort of talked about, you see breakups. What, what, what do you see happening with the family and the family structure? What trends do you see that might evolve? That's a complicated question. Social scientists are notoriously bad at predicting the future. <laughs> okay. So, you know, when you go back and you read what, you know, famous sociologists like Jack Goody, you know, predicted, it, it was that we were all going to be living in nuclear families. You know, that has not really come to pass. I don't think that COVID-19 it depends how long it sticks around, but I do think we're going to have a vaccine. I think that 
at maximum, we it's be one more year. I, it might be less than a year of all of this. I don't think the impact will be enough to fundamentally change behaviors. I think the trends that are in place, they are going to continue and get maybe more exacerbated. So the trend of people marrying later. Okay. So you need more education. It takes longer to get it. I mean, to be a young person today is very difficult from my perspective. I work with a lot of young people and everybody always talks about how great it is to be young. I think it's a very difficult time in human history to be young. You need more and more education, even for very basic jobs that historically didn't require all that education. That creates more of a gap. It's less easy today to attain some of the things that you know my generation was able to attain. So because, because you need more education and you need money in the United States to attain that education, you enter into the workplace later, it takes you longer to get financially established, and that pushes family formation even later. So we're just going to see this sort of age of coupling, how marriage or not marriage, I'm just going to call it coupling, is going to happen at a later age. So I think we're going to see more of that. By the way, this, there's a counter trend though, that you wait until you're older. The least amount of divorce is among people who are educated and older when they get married. Because the idea being that you're more stable, you know more yes. what you're looking for. You also have more financial and career stability, and that helps family stability. So what we're seeing is a bifurcation in the society. And I think we're going to see more of that. So people who have less education, less money, they're less likely to marry these days. And people who have more education and more money, they marry, they marry later, but they also stay married then. So we have a lot more family socioeconomic status is going along with marital and family stability, interestingly enough, much more so than historically. Historically, people who didn't have any money, they married also. So, and had children and all of that. We're see, but we're seeing this incredible divide in American society between these two groups. I think we will just see more of that. What I'm hoping, I don't know if we'll see it or not, I'm hoping that we see more workplace flexibility in terms of working at home, working remotely, you know, Companies are not enthusiastic about that. I just saw it on ABC this morning. You know, they think people are less productive, but there is that shift. And that really does help people. The number one sort of policy change that helps working families is some flexibility in their schedules. I see this. I have a flexible job. It allows me to deal with my children and their school and all that. When you don't have that, that is very complicated. The second piece is paid family leave. We haven't had very good policies around that at all. I think that through COVID, some of that's going to change and we will see a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit better uh, conditions for workers that allow for when they're sick to stay home or when you know a family member is sick for them to stay home you know companies are having to readjust that interesting i want to go back again 
to something that you were saying just earlier. You talked about COVID. It's creating a lot of stress in the home. You think we're going to see a lot of divorces. Well, we've got a ton of single people already out there. They're not going to couple, or maybe they're coupling, but they're not getting married. But of course, there are a ton of people who are single living alone for various reasons. Over the next five or 10 years, because of perhaps an, a spike in divorce or other factors, do you see that trend as continuing? I don't know. I always go back to my anthropological roots, <laughs> that human beings need, need attachment. They need intimate relationships. And it's difficult, you know, even people who live alone, they tend to, for the most part, to have networks of friends and, yeah. you know, people kind of, they form kin type relationships with people. What's in my head is that people still want to couple up. I think it depends where you are in your life, what has happened, if you're a younger person alone, an older person, you know, it, it, I, I hate to generalize because sure. it's not as simple as that. I think that younger people do want to couple up if it's under the umbrella of marriage or not. You know, it's interesting. I, this isn't a study. This is just, I always work with graduate students. And every time one of them tells me, Ooh, I'm engaged. I ask them, why are you getting married? You know, it's, it's always very interesting to me. <laughs> and even though I feel young, when they talk to me, I feel old because usually they will have lived together with their partner they will have bought a house with their partner. Sometimes they even have a child with their partner. And I'm like, why are you getting married? In my generation, you got married and then you did all these things. And I can't wrap my head around that you do all these things that to me, you know, to me buying a house and having a child, those are really serious commitments to make with someone more than a ceremony where you sign a piece of paper. But right. they're doing it in the opposite. Interesting. The opposite. And they say always, and but they're all, you know, my graduate students, my little sample of students here, yeah. they're all doing this and they're all getting married eventually, you know, even though they're a little bit older, late 20s, early 30s, you know, by the way, in Sweden, I was just reading men and men are 33 at first marriage now, you know, so we're really pushing this age. They say to me, still very traditional answers. I want to celebrate the, our commitment you know, this is, we were waiting till we had everything in place. We knew we could do it. And this is the symbol of that we've done it, our commitment to each other. So marriage is not going away. It's just, it's looking different. You know, and if you look at the proliferation of all these virtual dating sites and marriage sites and, you know, and the popularity of all of that, look at, look at these TV shows all, you know, and it's not just kids in other places too. There's still the human need to couple up and the, the symbolic recognition of a permanent, at least I always tell my students, the day people marry, I don't care if they're marrying in City Hall or if they're having a wedding with a thousand people, the day they marry, most people are not looking at their partner thinking, if it doesn't work out, we'll divorce. Most <laughs> people still, when they marry, they're like, oh, found someone, you know, we're, yes. we're going to make, make a go of this. And they want this commitment. So... And like I started out saying, you know, 1960s, early 70s, we thought that that was all going to go away and people were going to live very differently. That is not what has happened. So 
I think the proliferation of people living alone, again, we've added a life phase, which is you used to live at home and then you got engaged and mad, you moved out of your home, you started your own, you know, your own household. Now we've added this sort of young adult phase from like 22 to, I don't know, let's say 30, 32, where you live on your own and you're experimenting and you're doing all these different things, but it still culminates ultimately in some kind of permanent relationship. For people at the older age spectrum, that's a whole different story, you know? And that's, again, very cultural. Like I said, here, if you live in big cities, you find a lot of people or suburbs living alone. If you go out to Hawaii, you don't find that. People live with their grandparents in the same house. The houses are built with the idea that you're going to have several generations living in the same house. Multi-generational housing is becoming... Again, uh, a new uh, fad, I don't want to say fad, fad's a terrible word for it, but multi-generational is becoming a bit more common in the United States and in Europe. There are new experiments with having elderly and young people living, even sometimes if they're not related, they're living in the same building and the elderly people tutor the young people, you know, the young people help the elderly with technology, things like that. So we are seeing these new types of living arrangements that are fundamentally not new at all. So to conclude all this, human nature does not fundamentally change at all. And we have the need for these kind of bonds, intimate bonds between each other. Yes, that's that's great information and and great insights. I just had this silly thought about bell bottoms, you know, like what goes around, it comes back, you know, these things that you think are out of fashion, they they may come back again. Now, you alluded to the college students that you are surrounded by, your grad students and so forth, Bahira, makes me wonder, looking forward is about the future. It's also about what might be an opportunity for somebody in the future. So as you think about your area of expertise, your background was anthropology, you're an expert on, on families, all aspects of the family. You even talk now about intergenerational relationships. If you think about somebody who's trying to decide on where they want to go to college and more specifically what they would want to major in, what they want to do, somebody who's just gotten out of college, one of those 24 million or, or however many people who are out of work now, somebody who might be looking to completely change a career in midlife or somebody might want to do something on the side. I mean, there's a whole variety of people who might want to be doing something that could relate to what you're involved with, where might you see opportunities? Where would you suggest those people consider getting involved? It's a great question. The first is that people need to really embrace this technological change that we're part of. You can these days teach yourself anything. I mean, between YouTube and Google and the many courses there are online, you can you can get a Harvard education online just by, you know, you don't get the certificate, but you can certainly get the education. And yes. you can develop any kind of skill, which is really, really incredible. And again, very different from when I was growing up. So that's the first piece in this. I actually really love what my department does. We have a major in human, we have three majors, early childhood education, human relations, and human services. Our largest major is human services. 
And the Department of Labor predicts that in the next 10 years, there's going to be a huge need for human services work. Again, it goes to what I was saying before. Our needs, human needs, don't go away. We will need people who work in all different kinds of capacities with other people in terms of healthcare, education, counseling, school counseling, addiction experts, you know, people who run nonprofits, all of that. We, we educate people in my department to do all of these things. So it's a very skills-based education. And I know that many of my colleagues in other fields, they're against this. They say, you know, college should all be liberal arts and all of that. As a person who went through the finest education possible and learned, quote unquote, how to think, <laughs> I did graduate from college without having any real skills. I didn't really know how to do anything. I mean, I knew a lot of history, you know, I read mocks and everything else. I've become a believer. I actually, I was just thinking about this. I've become a real believer in skills-based education, not for everybody, but for a lot of people. So I think you need to graduate from college knowing how to do something. And that makes you more employable. But even for people who have lost jobs, yeah. I think learning a skill in some form either through a certificate or, like I said, self-taught that you can then later prove, however, that you know how to do whatever it is. It could be coding language or whatever. That is the way to go. So we have certain needs. You know, if it was me, what I would do is study up where are the needs in the society and then what can I do to educate myself to have a skill that fills one of these needs. You know, the tech industry is a great place. So like I said, the human side. Yes. And I was going to say, could you speak again more specifically to the human side? Because you seem to be talking about there's going to be a need. You talked about some of those kinds of hands-on skill set jobs. Can you speak a little bit more about them? Not just again for the student who will be leaving college to get that job, but for individuals who are already out there and maybe looking for something different. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In our department, we get a lot of returning adults. Yeah. So we have a lot of non-traditional students right. who, for whatever, they either dropped out of college or some of them went on, they became accountants or something like this, you know, something they thought would be a quote-unquote stable job. And they found they really didn't like it. And they really want to give back to society in some form or to the communities from which they came. And so they come back and they study with us and they get a human services degree. And then in our, you know, in that major, we have a lot of different specializations. Like I said, you can become an addiction counselor. You could do gerontology and work with elderly people. You could work in a wellness center, in a hospital. Um, you could work in a or start your own domestic violence shelter. There's a long list of these kinds of jobs. And our society has a need for these people with those kind of skills. That will never be replaced by a robot or by technology. I, I'm with you. And another one that I would add to your list, and I know you could have said this as well, Bahira, I spent two thirds of my career in the federal government. 
working for the federal government for the Department of Human Health and Human Services oh, and, the okay. v, and, and the VA. Yeah. There are plenty of opportunities, I think, in federal government service, if not state government, doing these human services kinds of yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. and the Department of Labor predicts that there's going to be an even bigger need in the next 10 years. So with the aging of the population, you know, the different sort of the rise of uh, more people who have disabilities, you know, th there's a need for people who do this kind of hands-on work with others. Thank you so much for pointing that out. I think it's, it's right on target. It really is. And we need more people to get involved in that area. And there are going to continue to be opportunities. And robots can't do everything. Computers can't do everything. The human touch is still very, very important. Yeah. Bihira, this has been wonderful. I just want to give you the opportunity at this point to share with our listeners how they might be able to learn more about Dr. Trass. <laughs> the kinds of things that you are doing, you and your colleagues maybe at the University of Delaware, some of the projects I know you're involved with, your students. I know you've written some books too, so this is your time to kind of let people know how to get in touch with you and about anything of particular interest they might want to avail themselves of. Well, first I want to thank you, Jeff. This has been a wonderful experience. You're I'm welcome. really enjoying the conversation. And your questions have been excellent and very much on point. I also don't want to leave people with a depressed or negative view of the future. Humans have survived for millions of years. We will survive this as well. And we just have to be flexible and go with the changes. My own research is around globalization and family change. And in all of my work, starting with my first book, I have argued that we are going through a change equivalent to the Industrial Revolution, but we're in the middle of it. So we can't really understand it for what it is, but everything is changing around us. But humans adapt and we, we will go with these changes and not all the changes are negative. All change has positive and negative. If you want to read more about this, you can look up our department at the University of Delaware. It's Human Development and Family Sciences. You can just Google it. It's hdfs.udel.com. And you can see all the wonderful work. I have wonderful colleagues who are working in all these different areas. You can see their research. If you Google my name, you get to the, my webpage at UD. It, lists, it has my CV. It lists my books and articles and things I've written. I've also done two TEDx talks, one on family change and one on women working outside of the home. So those are also, I've also done, uh, in 2018, I did a talk for the United Nations on International Day of Families. That was broadcast, that was webcast all over the world. That's, that's, there's a link to that as well. Wow. Speaking about a ton of accessible information, just last couple of things I'm going to mention to the audience. Number one is Dr. Trask's last name is spelled T-R-A-S-K is in kiss. <laughs> That's one thing. And, and the other thing is that I will be posting information about how to access Dr. Trask on my website, jeff-ostroff.com. And of course, the show, Looking Forward, appears on many different podcasts hosting sites. Behira, thank you so much. This has been great. 
Thank you, Jeff. It's been a wonderful experience. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.